identity shift is a message. Actually, I've been preaching for quite a while, but then when I got invited to speak at this conference and I saw that the theme was identity, I said, this is my opportunity to really unpack this thing and fill in some of the details. So I want to start with a story. You recognize this girl? How many of you recognize this face? This girl started out um, in Afghanistan. She lives in, in the Middle East. And her picture was taken during a political crisis in Afghanistan where the Russian, the Soviet government came in and partnered with the Afghan government and there were groups that rose up against that coalition. And so it put the country in chaos. And what happened was the people were driven into refugee camps. So this picture was taken by a National Geographic photographer named Steve McCurry in a refugee camp in Pakistan. And the amazing part about this photograph is that it captures the desperation and terror and horror of war, doesn't it? I mean, you just see it in her eyes. So this picture was taken, it was brought back to the States, and it was put on the cover of National Geographic magazine. And it is still today considered one of the 100 most famous photographs of all time. And yet we didn't know who this girl was. We called her the Afghan girl. The picture was taken in 1984. 17 years later, the photographer went back to the Middle East and he searched and he searched and he searched, finally found the woman. Her name was Sharbat Gula. And if you want to see her as a grown woman, go ahead and, and Google that, you know, Sharbat Gula. So he met her and he tried to explain to her the fact that the West all knew her face. You know, everybody over here, the people that you don't know, know you. And they're acquainted with your face. And they saw this picture. And it communicated to them what you were going through. They tried to explain that to her. And because she, this is before the digital age, where we have pretty much everyone in the world, not everyone, but most of the people in the world have access to what's out there, if you know what I mean. This is before that age, and so she had no, no awareness whatsoever that her picture had circulated around and become so famous. So he's trying to explain all this to her, and you know what she does? She goes, I have a tear in my headscarf. She picked out the one little flaw in herself that then enlarged in her mind, rather than try to grasp the fact that she was so significant to people that she didn't even know. And I think that's like us. I think what we do is we dwell so much on our flaws that we lose sight of the fact that we are profoundly significant to the God of heaven and to the angels. This world that we're not currently so much a part of, or at least in, in a physical sense not inhabiting, but we're profoundly significant to them. And we lose sight of that because we get caught up in our flaws. And so what God wants to do is help us bring our self-awareness to the place where we understand how significant we are. So I call that identity shift. Now, we as human beings will have a self-concept. We will have a self-image. It's not possible for us not to have some kind of self-image, some kind of self-concept. Other animals in creation lack a self-concept. I'll give you an example. I was walking in the park with my chihuahua, about four pound little tiny dog. Do you know that chihuahuas are very aggressive? And I think it's because God 
puts in them this ferocity so that they'll seem ferocious to maybe ward off some of the enemies because the reality is that little dog ends up in the jaws of a big dog and they'll kill him. I mean, my daughter's chihuahua got attacked in a park and she almost died. The dog grabbed her and shook her. We have pit bulls in my neighborhood and I've got a chihuahua and he goes up to the fence and goes, nah, 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 nah. they're just like, I'm gonna kill you and he, they can't get to him because everything's fenced. I've, I live in fear that one day they'll break through. But these chihuahuas often have this barking reflex. And I remember watching this little chihuahua one day and a big dog walked by and she was like, I'm gonna kill you, I dare you to come up and pick up, you know, it was like that kind of thing. And I was like, this dog has no concept of how small she is. But we as human beings have a self-concept, so when someone is 20 times bigger than us, we don't go up and go, ah, pick a fight with me. We don't do that because we are self-aware. So human beings have this fixed sense of self-awareness, and as far as I'm concerned, it might as well be positive if, if it can be positive within the bounds of God's will for us. What do you say? But that's a little bit of a difficult issue, isn't it? Because we don't want to be proud, you know? We don't want to be all about ourselves and arrogant and puffed up and all this stuff. And so sometimes as human beings, we think that the way to prevent pride is to just have low self-esteem and you know, think badly about ourselves, and that'll keep me humble. But you know what? It doesn't work that way at all. In fact, let me share an amazing statement with you. It says, the Lord is disappointed when his people place a, do I have like one of those little, oh good, I can do this if you start falling asleep, I'll just, you know. So the Lord is disappointed when his people place a low estimate. Do you see the verbiage there? Low estimate, low self, what? Esteem, same kind of concept. God is disappointed when we have low self-esteem. Did you see that? But then let's, let's move on here because we want to make sure that we're on the right page with biblical truth when they place a low estimate upon themselves. Read this part with me, okay? Ready? He desires his chosen heritage to value themselves according to the price he has placed upon them. Who's his chosen heritage? Right, let's break this down. So he desires us. And then it says that he wants us to value ourselves According to what price? The price that he placed upon us, which is how much price? It's an infinite price because everything of value exists in God and only has existence because God keeps it in existence. And so in him is all value collectively combined and nothing of value exists outside of him. So if he poured out his life on the cross for us, that means he values us infinitely. And notice that he doesn't only want us to accept that he values us infinitely, but he wants us to what? Value ourselves infinitely. Now I propose to you that this infinite valuing of ourselves is so much deeper and more stable and more steadying and, and more rich than any kind of self-esteem the world could offer you, that it just pales in comparison. Are you following with me? So the world tells you value yourself. Okay, that's good. But then it says value yourself based on how you measure against others. You know, you're exceptional. 
You have more power, you have more beauty, you have more money, you have more talent, more accomplishments than others. Tries to lead us into that kind of thing. Social comparison and basing our value on that. But you know what happens with that program? You may be the smartest man in the room, smartest guy in the room. I mean, I'm the smartest guy in the room when I'm the only person in the room, you know? That works out well. But sometimes I'm the smartest person in the room when I'm with another person, okay? Once in a while, occasionally it happens. But all that needs to happen is for someone smarter to come along. And if I'm basing my self-worth on how I measure against others, guess what happens in that moment? It's gone, and there's no self-worth left. And so what God is doing here is he's trying to get our root system to go down into the soil of the reality that Jesus died for us and let that be the foundation of our self-valuing, valuing ourselves according to the price that he placed upon us. You guys buying into this? I'm teaching you a new word. You ready? Maybe it's not new. Maybe you guys like read the dictionary and stuff, but let's read it together. It's phloxanoxania hillopilification. I'm serious. It's a real word. And it means to regard something as worthless. So phloxanoxania hillopilification. I'm going to hold you accountable for phloxanoxania hillopilificating yourself, okay? Because we're going to just like repair your self-worth this morning. And everything's going to be good. So this is a bit difficult, as I mentioned before, because human beings have issues, don't we? In fact, the Bible says that there's a lot wrong with us, doesn't it? And have you found that to be true? Have you done an empirical test of that thesis? I have, and I have found it to be true. There's a lot in me that is not worthy of me valuing myself. So what we do in psychology is we split the different ways of the, the, the negative feelings about, that we have about ourselves into two basic categories, guilt and shame. Guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I what? I am bad. And what the gospel offers us is a way of processing and dealing with both. Some people say, well, you know, you can have guilt, a little bit of guilt now and then as a Christian, but you can't have any shame. But I find that unrealistic. Stay with me. I'm not promoting shame. Ultimately, we bring it to Jesus, and he takes it away. But there are going to be times when we feel shame. That should not be shocking to us. After all, the Bible says that we're in a very depraved condition naturally. The whole heart is sick. The whole heart, that the whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. There is nothing in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, putting in medical terms the depravity of human nature from the prophet Isaiah. And then the prophet Jeremiah says, uh, all our righteousnesses are as filthy, what? And, and literally, I, I don't mean to gross you out, but you know what that means, right? Menstrual claws, filth-ridden, bacterial crawling, filthiness. That's what the Bible says about human nature. All we like sheep have gone astray. There, there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. These are biblical truths. And so not only do we do things wrong, but we are wrong. But what the gospel does is it provides a way whereby we can bring that to Jesus and he can regenerate a sense of self-valuing, even in the face of the depravity of human nature. And I really pray and hope that by the end of this presentation, you'll start to understand maybe a little bit better 
as a result of what I say, how God does that. Because I think that his ways of helping us develop positive self-concept should be marketed to the world because of their validity and because of their strength. Okay, so a little bit of scientific research here. This is a study that compared the mindset of guilt proneness with the mindset of shame proneness. Okay, interesting. Guilt proneness involves a working model of self, in other words, a self-concept that is humble about personal limitations. So I did something wrong. That isn't horrifying to me because I know that I'm a flawed human being. I'm not shocked by that. It doesn't completely tumble my self-concept when I make a mistake. That means that in a relational context, if I do something to hurt someone else, I can say, you know, you're right. I, I'm sorry. I, I could have done better. And it's no big deal. It's not a crushing blow to me that I did something wrong. It, apology becomes e easy in that context. Shame proneness involves a more narcissistic working model of self. Do you know what narcissism is? Narcissism is extreme selfishness, extreme vanity. So a shame-prone person is more narcissistic. For them, it's all or nothing. Either I do everything right, or it's a complete loss, and my self-worth is completely crumbled. So we want to have a, a mindset that allows for us to be what we really are, which is fallen human beings. But we want to also keep redirecting our thoughts to Jesus and I believe that the way that he works with us to repair our self-worth in the context of our fallen nature is what I call identity shift. And it's based upon a psychological principle that you and I have all seen play out in our experience and the experience of other people. And it's based on this psychological principle that we become what we think we are. We tend to conform to our own self-image. And this is why self-image repair is so important for Christians, because our behaviors, our very mindset and attitude will follow what we think about ourselves. It's a fact. It's a fact I can show you. A child frequently censured for some special fault comes to regard that fault as his peculiarity. In other words, he comes to identify with that fault, something against which it is in vain to strive. In other words, why bother? That's shame. I am this thing. I might as well just give up because there's no change for me. Thus are created discouragement and hopelessness, often concealed under an appearance of indifference or bravado. Have you seen this in yourself, maybe, where you put on a show of being really confident and all about yourself and you know, never, never unsettled in terms of how you feel about yourself, but then on the inside, you're completely insecure. Have you ever met someone that seemed so confident, but then in a moment, you can see a flash of their deep insecurity? That's a narcissism shame complex that we see often in people that become sick, I mean, literally to the point where they can be diagnosed because this is such an extreme contrast. So we become what we think we are. This is one example of that. Now, part of the way that God works to develop identity in human beings is through what we call role modeling. Human beings are very imitative by nature. I don't mean to imply that we're monkeys. I know we're not. I've done my Bible study on creation, but I just thought that was a really cute picture. And it's true that 
children especially, will imitate their role models. Have you seen this? And we all learn to some degree through imitation. This can work for good or for evil. This is from Newsweek magazine. It says, violent kids have bad role models. This article was lamenting the fact that the juvenile laws were not sufficient to deal with the level of juvenile crime anymore. You know, it used to be you didn't incarcerate. You didn't do these things when they're underage, but it wasn't enough. Young people were committing so many very serious crimes. More than half of the adolescents in jail have a father, mother, or other relative who has been there first. This is how it works. You see your uncle, your father, your mother. They all did crack cocaine, right? And they all did, you know, selling drugs or whatever. And you start to think, well, that's where I'm from. That's who I am. Because you identify with your role models, right? And then you end up imitating those behaviors. We've seen this over and over in, in human behavior. So I've tried to create a little diagram here that explains how this works. Starts out with ad, uh, admiration. We admire our role models. And then we begin to identify with our role models. Well, I'm like them. I want to be like them, or I am like them, or both. And then finally, we internalize the principles of that role model to where we become, we do become like them. Now, this concept has limitations. People will think that they can become something that they can never become. And let me break this down for you a little bit. The girl that sang last night, beautiful. I went up to her. I, I, it touched my heart, that song. I just cried through the whole thing, washed off all my mascara. It's one way to get women to stop wearing makeup, just wash it off in church, you know. And uh, so I went up and I said, that was a beautiful song, and, and I, you really moved my heart. And she, of all things, she said, do you sing? I don't know why she said that. And um, I said, yeah, I do, but not like you. Because <laughs> the reality is that I cannot physically make myself sing like her. I have an old voice box, and she has a young voice box. And believe me, there's a difference. And so there's a physical reality there that would keep me from becoming like her. So I can think I'm her. I can think I'm like her. I'm never going to become like her. Inability. But what will happen is I will conform to her morally and spiritually if I make her my role model. And so the moral and spiritual realm is where this principle of you become what you think you are plays out. Okay, you with me? So there's kids out there, you know, kids eight years old, and his role model is the rapper that he sees, you know, on his iPhone 24-7, right? And he thinks, I'm going to be famous like him someday. Well, the chances are he will never be famous like him. And this is what is so, why it's so tragic when we hold up those kind of role models for young people. Because while there's a couple success stories, there are thousands that are just wrecks, you know, that have brought their life to nothing because they never learned a practical skill because they thought they were going to be a star. You with me? So that child cannot imitate that rap star because he either lacks the ability or he lacks the connections, or some kind of temporal limiting factor. But he will become like that role, that role model, morally and spiritually. And right there, you have a real tragedy. Do we want that for our young people? I don't. So this, the, the Babylonish psychologists understood this principle of identity. And the first thing they did, and I can't stand this picture. I tried to find a picture where Daniel and his friends looked more Middle Eastern, you know? I really, I really, honestly, I take umbrage with the fact that 
that all the many of the religious illustrations of Bible stories are white people. It really bothers me, and I, you know, I know people of color here. It, it's it's hard because you know you want role models, people that look like you, and so it sort of cuts into that. But I found the best one I could. But you guys know the story and what happened there. What's the first thing those Babylonish psychologists did? I mean, they understood the workings of the mind. And what did they do? They changed their names. You know, names are really significant. Names make a big difference in a person's identity, or at least they can. And in Hebrew culture, they did. You name the child something you wanted them to become like. Okay. So they had named their kids, God is my judge, the Lord is favored, who is like God, the Lord helps. They wanted them to identify with the God of Israel through their name. I did that with my kids, Allison, truthful one. She's an honest girl, because I used it the whole time she was growing up. Truthful one. And then Kimberly, noble. Used that the whole time. She's, she's a noble girl. She can, they conform to their identity that I gave them through their name. Names are significant. I heard a story. I did an evangelistic uh, tour years ago in Africa, and they had just had a big campaign. And you know how sometimes we see in the West this shame of the church? You know, young people, like uh, they don't want to identify with the church. They're just too cool for school kind of thing. And uh, it was the opposite in Africa, because these new converts were naming their children after things that associated with the church. So one of them named their child Seventh-day Adventist. And then that was taken, so someone named their child General, uh, General Conference. True story. Names have meaning. There was a, a governor of Texas that named his daughter Ima. And that doesn't really mean anything, except that his last name was Hogg, H-A-U-G. Do you believe he did that? It's a true story. He did that. When she would sign her name, it would be I-H-A-U-G. So names are significant. And so this is the first thing they did, is try to get these boys to identify with the gods of Baal so that they would be able to dismantle them from their Hebrew heritage. And then they knew that once they had their identity, they had their soul. So let's look at some inspired comments about identity. There are rights which belong to every individual. We have an individuality and a what? an identity that is our own. No one can submerge his what identity in that of any other. All must act for themselves according to the dictates of their own what? Conscience. So identity is rooted in conscience. This is talking about identity within the marriage relationship. And I'm a marriage counselor, and I'm married and have been for many years. And I know that one of the greatest tests of individuality is marriage because it's such a close relationship. The temptation to merge your identity is very great. And often in marriages, the stronger, more dominant personality takes away the individuality of the other, and the other willingly yields it. But this is a sin against God. Listen to this. A woman that will submit to be ever dictated to in the smallest matters of domestic life. That means constantly dictated to, okay? So there's an idea out there that wives should submit to their husbands unless the husband tells them to do something immoral. You gotta go out and drink with me, you gotta party, we gotta have a try, you know, this type of thing. No, I can't do that, she doesn't have to submit. But I've always asked, well, what if he tells her a whole bunch of moral things to do, but he just micromanages her? You know what Ellen White doesn't like about hypnosis? You know what she doesn't like about hypnosis? It's mind control. It's one human being controlling another. Do you know what's so bad about the beast of revelation? 
It's mind control. It's taking away our religious liberties and our rights to think and worship the way God leads us as individuals to do so. That's what God doesn't like about the beast. That's what he doesn't like about hypnosis. It's mind control. So if a wife controls the mind of her husband, or a husband, because it can go both ways, um, husband controls the mind of his wife, that's offensive to God because it takes away our individuality. A woman who will yield up her identity will never be of much use or blessing in the world and will not answer the purpose of God in her existence. Whoa, that's intense. Talking about Christian relationships within the work of God, we are now to unify. But let us remember that Christian unity does not mean that the identity of one person is to be submerged in that of another. Nor does it mean that the mind of one is to be led and controlled by the mind of another. And this one, finally, we can't afford to lose ourselves in one person. And his name is Jesus. You guys are awfully quiet. Are you with me? Okay, good. All right. These will not be talking of self, vindicating self, but will lose their what? identity in Jesus Christ. And it, it's so cool how this works because you lose your identity in Jesus and guess what he does? He gives it back. You give your will to Jesus and he polishes it up and refines it and beautifies and makes it more you know, strong, strengthens it, and then gives it back to you. And he says you can walk away anytime you want, but you won't want to because I'm granting you freedom and freedom elicits love, see? And in the same way, we can give our, it, our identity our selfhood to Jesus, and he will only develop it because he makes us more distinctly unique rather than less distinctly unique. So let's look at some science here. This is from one study of adolescence. It said, teens with greater identity commitment engaged in less risk behavior than teens with low identity commitment. So all that means is that kids that had a stronger sense of who they were did better than kids who didn't. Didn't say what kind of identity, but then there was more research a little bit down the road. And it said that religion contributes to the development of identity and stability in people. And then following on, it says evidence is suggestive. And this was a study that was done on college age kids. And they looked at not only their identity commitment or their level of stability of identity, but also if they had a religious identity or a secular identity, and this is what they found. Evidence is suggestive that a religiously oriented faith identity may be more protective in combination with high levels of commitment, while secularism and high commitment appears least protective. So it's not only having a strong identity, it's that it's rooted and grounded in faith in God. Isn't that, isn't that powerful? I love it when I find science that actually validates biblical principles. It, I literally will be reading scientific literature and crying because I see God's signature. You know, it doesn't always come through science because the scientific method is a humanly orchestrated process and there's opportunity for subjective subjectivity through the whole thing. You know what I'm saying? And so there's studies that come out and say, that, you know, in one breath, eggs are good for you. In the next breath, they're not good. Or caffeine is fine. Or it's not so good for you. Or it, 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 there's a lot of subjectivity in the scientific. So it isn't consistently right. 
but sometimes it is, and sometimes it validates the word of God, and I love that when that happens. How many of you are in sciences of one kind or another? Okay, cool, you know what I'm talking about. So I, the reason I have this picture of Zeus up here is because it's the pantheon, it's the Greek pantheon, the gods of Greece. And I wanna make the point that we have gods in our culture today. We have a pantheon of gods, and they are the athletes, Hollywood, the musicians, these are the gods that we put before our young people. And what that does is it creates a movement where that young person begins to conform to that god morally and spiritually. Typically, that young person doesn't have the ability to become the football star or the rock star or whatever, but they will still conform to them morally and spiritually. Are you tracking with me on that one? So an example of that is Lady Gaga did this video she wore these big circular contact lenses that made her eyes round like that. Guess what happened to the sales of those lenses? Even though they're very dangerous, what happened the next day as soon as this video came out? They skyrocketed. Every young person seemed to want one of these pair of lenses. So let's go back to the role model concept. Healthy role models have certain distinct characteristics. They know us, first of all. Don't you hate it when rock stars get up and say, I love you, to their stadium full of people? They don't love you. They love the money that comes in or whatever. I mean, they, feel, they love the dopamine rush they're getting from you know, thousands of people screaming their name. But they don't love you. How do you know they don't love you? Because they don't what? They don't even know you. And you can't love someone if you don't know them. So that's a pet peeve of mine. You don't love those people. You don't even know them. But a true role model knows us, loves us, uplifts us morally and spiritually, and identifies with us in contrast to unhealthy role models who don't know us, don't love us, don't uplift us, and don't identify with us. Friends, Jesus identified with you to elicit you identifying with him. The first chapter of Hebrews is all about the divinity of Jesus. The second chapter is all about the humanity of Jesus. In all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Inasmuch as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We have not an high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points, what? Tempted like we are. He identified with us so that we could then identify with him. And friends, that's what I call a role model. Amen? And that role model doesn't stop with admiration. And he doesn't even stop with identification. He wants to lead you down a path where you internalize the principles and go through a profound transformation in heart, in mind, and in behavior. That's what your role model, Jesus, wants. And he says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, read it with me, therefore if anyone is what? In Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now I'm going to put this on Fast forward here because I don't have a huge amount of time and I know you guys haven't had breakfast and you're going to start 
having low blood sugar if I go on too long, but I really want to get this concept, these concepts across to you and flesh them out appropriately. So do you see this cycle up here? I know that you've experienced this cycle. We all do what? We've all sinned. And then we tend to then identify ourselves by that sin, and then we conform to our own identity. And what does that lead to? More sin. Fortunately, God breaks the cycle. And he does it. What in the world happened there? I don't know why that says sin. It should say righteousness. I must have, something happened. But anyway, typo. (laughs) We identify with Jesus' righteousness, and we become like what? Like Jesus. Amen? Oh, that's weird. Because it's the right one on my computer. Okay, anyway. So the million-dollar question is, if we're new creatures in Christ, and if when we identify as those new, new creatures in Christ, we start to conform to that identity and catalyze the Christian growth process, how many of you want that experience? Does anybody here not want that experience? No, I don't want to grow. I don't want to be more like Jesus. I, I think there might be some people that are in that place, and that's okay, because God is going to work this weekend and, and make us all want to get there. But... Um, I know you're not going to raise your hand, (laughs) but you all, most of you, want to be like Jesus, and you want to grow, right? And so if counting ourselves as in Christ and seeing ourselves as in Christ is going to move us forward in that process, we all want that, right? So the million-dollar question is, who's in Christ? I want to look at this from kind of a theological place, and I want to create a watertight system where there is never a point in your life where you ever have to say that this in Christ concept does not apply to you. This is dangerous stuff. You know, truth and error are very close. And there's an error called universalism. And it means like everybody is saved and God is just this laid back guy. And and I believe that. But there's a truth that looks similar to it in some ways. And I'm going to try to be faithful to the scripture in conveying this because I believe it creates a foundation of security, particularly in young people. There are two phases of the in Christ phenomena. One is the divine initiative phase and the other is the human acceptance phase. Look at, let, let's look at the divine initiative phase. This is Ephesians 2. Brian was reading last night from Ephesians 2. This is an excellent passage. It says, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead. When? When we were dead. Okay, so this happened when we, and it's using collective language here, were what? Had we come up to the front of the church and accepted Jesus and experienced new life yet? No. The human race was collectively dead because... We had fallen into sin with our grandfather, Adam, and so we were lost collectively. But even when we were dead in trespasses, he, God, made us alive together with Christ. This is talking about the resurrection. This is not talking about my personal resurrection. I don't think it's personally talking about, or wait, back up, back up. I don't personally think this is talking about my personal resurrection when I was baptized or my personal resurrection when I pray to Jesus and he fills me with his Holy Spirit and I have forgiveness and new life. You can apply this to that, and it's okay to do that, but I think the primary application is something that happened as a historic fact. 
collectively to the human race in Christ because he had to lay the foundation before we could have a personal experience in those things. Are you, are you tracking with me? Okay, so he made us alive together with Christ. This is talking, I believe, about the resurrection. And then it says, by grace you have been saved. So it's almost like it says, here's the key to you not descending into the temptation of all religious people, which is legalism. Do you know that all world religions are basically legalistic? Man is saved by his own works. And, and that the Lord tells us that where that principle is embraced, there is no barrier against sin. So then you have this outward religiosity and this horrific underbelly in religious circles where people are living these legalistic principles and it, they're not transformed, they're not changed, and they take their carnal nature and they're still living in their carnality, but they submerge it and they make it secret. And we see this phenomena over and over again in religious, true? You know? There's some documentaries I could recommend. Anyway, our protection against legalism, and we're all in danger of legalism. All human beings are because we all want to stand in our own merits before God. You can be a pot-smoking, cigarette-smoking, drinking kind of person, worldly as can be, and still be a legalist at heart because you want to, oh, but I gave at the office, you know, and I helped the people at the homeless shelter. You want to stand in your own merits. That's the core of legalism, right? So here's your cure against it. It's, it affects all of us. By grace, you have been saved. But understanding this idea that God did something for us historically in Christ is key to getting us out of that self-merit program and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in who? Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us. Where? In Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It said it again in the same short passage. Twice it says by grace you've been saved. This must really be connected to this this in Christ idea, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Are you following with me so far? Okay, let's look at another one. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile how many things? All things to himself. God had to reconcile humanity to himself on the cross before he could reconcile us individually. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, and you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has what? Reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you wholly blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast. This is from the book, The Great Controversy. It says, the consequence of Adam's sin, in consequence of Adam's sin, death passed upon the whole human race. All alike go down into the grave. And through the provisions of the plan of salvation, all are to be brought forth from their graves. There shall be a resurrection of the dead, both the just and the unjust. Do you believe that? Amen. Yes. And then listen to this. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So God is saying when those people, those lost people come out of their graves, look, I made an infinite sacrifice for you to be saved eternally, but you refuse the sacrifice. But this is my one last message to you, that I made that sacrifice for you. You're coming out of the grave. I put you, I represented you before the Father, and you rejected that representation. 
we're told, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. What is Jesus called here? The last Adam. Who was Adam? What role did he play to humanity? He was the head of humanity. He was the representative of humanity. I think, you know, with all this stuff involving women's role and men's role that we're talking about in the church these days, we need to realize there is a representation model in the Bible. And Adam represented humanity. God call, called out to him, where are you? He didn't say that to Eve. He was the fall guy. He was the final word. He was the representative of what happened to both of them. And the man, in a similar way, is the priest in the family. He represents the family to God. That's, that doesn't mean that there's no equality or that it's, he bosses them around. It, far from it. It's the opposite. But Jesus is called the last Adam. So now you're going to understand how this in Christ idea can work collectively. And the word that was spoken to Jesus at the Jordan, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, embraces what? So when God was pleased with Jesus, he was pleased with who? Humanity. That's right. You're with me. God spoke to Jesus as our what? Representative. That Adam figure. He's our representative. And in that sense, humanity is in Christ. It's not this metaphysical thing where you're like floating around inside of Jesus. It's through representation. You're under the umbrella with all our sins and weaknesses. We are not cast aside as worthless. He has made us what? accepted in the beloved. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. This is a little bit warmer concept. It's going to be easier to wrap our mind around. Adoption is a process whereby a strong figure, a person of authority, makes all the legal and logistical arrangements necessary to bring someone into their family. Does the baby initiate the adoption process? The baby isn't even aware of what's going on in most cases. Now, we have different kinds of adoption, but in many cases, and adoption as it was probably practiced when this was said, it's completely out of the hands of the baby. They're not even aware of what's going on, but there are these powerful figures in their lives making these arrangements for them. And so adoption of Jesus, the adoption that Jesus facilitated was the same. You guys are so quiet. Is this meaning something to you? Okay, it's, I know it's deep, but I figure it's fresh. You know, your brain is fresh, so you can, you can really kind of wrap it around some, some deep concepts. So we're adopted through Jesus Christ to God according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the what? The beloved Jesus. God gave it to us when he gave it to Jesus. Just like it said a moment ago, he gave his approval to Jesus and accounted for all of us. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us even when we were without strength. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Amen? And you know what? We need that. We need to remember that. God died for them too, and he did something powerful for them, and he adopted them too in Christ. Because there's a lost person in each one of us, and if our security is based on the right things we have done, even on the fact that we've committed our life to God, and we're trying to live by faith, if it's based on anything that originates from us, it is it's a flimsy foundation. But if we realize that it's based on something God did, that he's the initiator in the process of salvation, 
We need to let the field of our vision be filled with God and then a sliver of ourselves so we can have some accountability. But let God be all in all, amen? He's the reason that you're where you're at today, if anything is going right in your life. And even if everything's going wrong in your life, he's the reason you're at GYC this, re- this weekend, amen? So he adopted us. The quick story here is the true story of a father of a, a mixed family, some biological children and some adopted children. And the day came to explain to the youngest son, Tommy, that he had been adopted. The father pointed to Mark, Tommy's older brother, who was a biological child, and he explained that Mark had been born within the family, but then he turned to Tommy and he said, you were born outside the family, but then we chose you and waited for you and then received you with joy. We adopted you. And Tommy said, can we adopt Mark too? That's awesome. You know, so adoption is a good thing. I don't know if there's anyone here that's been adopted, but it's a good thing. And we've all been adopted in Christ, amen? God put humanity into Christ, and Ellen White says, through Jesus, he saved the world. But the tragic reality is that many will reject that adoption. And so all of the penalty of sin that came upon Jesus there at the cross, as he hung there, he exhausted the penalty of sin in behalf of humanity. People say, oh, well, you know, the lake of fire can't be real because there was no fire on Jesus. But I say there was fire in Jesus. It was the Shekinah of God's glory. He was the Son of God. The holiness of God indwelt him. Completely uninterrupted, completely unsullied, fully embodied in Jesus, the holiness of God. And then he became sin for us who knew no sin that we became the righteousness of God in him and that holiness and that sin embodied in the same person. What happens when holiness and sin collide? There's fire, isn't there? And so there was a meltdown inside of Jesus. There was most certainly the fire of, that we see in the lake of fire. And this explains why you know, it's an internal condition that determines ultimately what happens to people when Jesus comes again. He comes in the clouds, and some of us are going, Jesus, he's finally here. Whoa, there he is, there he is. And some are hiding under rocks. Why? Because they have identified with their sin. And when they see holiness personified coming in the clouds, they think, I am the very thing that he hates, and they go hide under a rock. But those of us have let go of our identity with sin and identified with Jesus, see nothing but his bright face beaming down on us. And that's what happens on a psychological, I think, level. I'm not saying there isn't real fire and all that. I don't get too metaphysical about it. But this is the tragedy, is that the majority of the human race will be found outside of Christ. And the penalty for sin, the wrath of God against sin that already fell on Jesus, will have to fall again on them. What a profound waste is that? Jesus bore that penalty in our behalf, and he says, stand under my shelter so you as a sinner never have to encounter the wrath of God against sin. But people won't stand under the shelter. Jesus said, I tried again and again, Jerusalem, to gather you like a hen gathers chicks, to cover you with my feathers, like the Bible says, and you would not. The majority of the human race will not, and they will end up bearing the wrath of God against sin, and they will identify with their sin, and they will experience it as the wrath of God against them personally. It's a a terrible thing. 
Very quickly here, there's the human acceptance phase of in Christ. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received what? The reconciliation. The reconciliation is a word for the cross. We've received the cross. Amen? For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of what? Adoption as sons by which, and I'll put it in today's vernacular, by which we cry out, Daddy, <laughs> Father, personal, intimate relationship. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. I want to receive the adoption as sons. And the net result of that is in Christ, and these are all based on biblical texts in the New Testament, mostly the letters of Paul. I did a word study in Christ, in God. In Christ, we are all these things. Now, in our experience, we are not all these things. But in Christ, we are all these things. And through his cross, we have the right to identify with who we are in Christ. We are alive, justified, free, one with God, one with other believers, established, victorious, enlightened, faithful. Are you always faithful? No, I'm not always faithful. I'll be honest about that. Do you always feel significant? I don't always feel significant. Are you always doing good works? No. You always feel near to God? No. That's your subjective experience. But there's another experience, and that is your experience in Christ. And you are given permission through the gospel to identify with that experience. So you are faithful, significant, created for good works, near to God, forgiven, rejoicing, perfect, a saint. Amen? You are all those things. Claim it. God, this isn't my idea. This isn't your idea. It's God's idea. Okay, so closing up here, I had a client. And this client was a good kid. He's the kind of kid that would come to a, an event like this and sit in the front row and take notes. Like, he was just really a good kid, really responsible, really smart, really together. He'd had some developmental hits, we call them. He'd been adopted, and his life before adoption was rough. And so there were some seeds of, of habits and things inside of him that made it easy for him to deviate from who he really wanted to be. But most of the time, he was really good, really clean-cut, responsible. Once in a while, like every six months, he would descend into the most heinous of sins. I'll, I'll just be blunt. It was pornography. Not uncommon, unfortunately. And I started working with him because I sensed that he was over-identifying with his sin. And I said, you know, the Bible says you have permission as a Christian walking by faith and trying to overcome, committing your life to God to identify with who you are in Christ. Yeah, but I can't do that because I do this thing. And I said, I know you do, but you have permission. So he wouldn't budge really. And so I, I did a Bible study with him from Romans 7. Let's look at these verses. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I what? Died. You know how we say, oh, I died. That means we're embarrassed, right? And embarrassment is kind of like shame. When we see our sinfulness, we feel what? Shame, profound shame. God can use that experience, but he doesn't want us to stay there, right? So this is part of the story. It's not the whole story. Ellen White says that his self-esteem was gone. Paul's self-esteem was gone when he saw his sinfulness. It keeps going, and it says, For sin taking an opportunity through the commandment did what? 
deceive me. So we see that the destructive power of sin is through a deception. Do you see that? And we're going to identify what the deception is in a moment here. And through it killed me. A little bit later in the chapter, he says, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me, that is in my flesh. So through the gospel, Paul has now received permission to dissociate from his sin, like I was trying to get my client to do. I said, do you see that? It says it right there. It's not you, it's sin dwelling in you. You're identifying with Christ, who you are in Jesus. Jesus is throwing us a lifeline here, guys. He's saying, this is the way out. I know not all of you have victory. You look great, but I know what goes on. I have clients from this population, and I know myself and what I've struggled with in life. I'm not any kind of champion here. I'm just a little older, and the world doesn't look quite as good when you get older, so, you know. But I have my, you know, we all have our areas, you know, and I know some of you are struggling mighty against habits you want to break. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I just know it. Or maybe you're struggling with the, the fallout of being abused or having some horrendous experience, and you're just, you act out in ways that you wish you didn't. Well, you don't have to identify with that because it's a temporary thing. It's a temporary lapse back into your old nature. And God is going to train you. You're in an education process. It's called sanctification. And ultimately, you're going to be what he sees now as he looks down the annals of the future and sees you in Christ in your finished product. You can identify with who you will be in him. For, first, first John 3, it says, behold, uh, it says um, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And it does not yet appear who we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Amen? God is going to bring us off more than conquerors. He promised he that's begun a good work in you will perform it till when? Till the day of Jesus. He promised to get you ready for his coming. Amen? Are you with me? And, but then it says, we will see him as he is, and everyone thus, who thus hopes in him, if you will hope in him that he will prepare you for that day, purifies himself even as he is pure. God will prepare you if you will but believe that he has that in your future. And he sees it and experiences your future self, your best self, as existing right now because he doesn't live within the confines of time. And so God sees you through that lens of who you will ultimately become in him. Amen? Are you with me? So he says, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. And then he has this triumphant note. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Now, some people interpret this like, you know, I go to church and I have all these spirituals and then I just go smoke and drink and do all the, you know, I can't conquer, I can't overcome. That's not what this is saying at all. Your, your flesh is serving the law of sin because it's fallen and it will always pull you toward sin your whole life until Jesus comes. You will have that pull toward selfishness, toward narcissism, toward lust, toward profanity, toward all manner of sin, depending on what your weaknesses are. Your whole life you'll experience. That's what he means by he is serving the law of sin, not actively serving and choosing, but his flesh is just oriented that way. Talk about orientation. We talk about orientation a lot these days. Well, yeah, we're all sinfully oriented. Have you noticed? Yes. And so 
he is with his mind serving the law of God, with his flesh the law of sin. But notice, who does he identify with? Does he say, I myself uh, serve the law of sin? No, he says, I myself with my mind of serving the law of God. He identifies himself. And that's the way in which Satan deceives us. He tries to get us to identify with our sin. But God is saying, come to me, identify with me. I wanted to have a perfect illustrative story. I couldn't think of one. And I just thought, maybe you are the story, each one of you. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.